0: Today, uh, we're looking at uh, why, you know, it's one of the foundational truths of understanding the entire series. And the reason we're doing this series is because there's a new normal in America right now that I just don't like. I don't like the new normal that we see going on. And and here's kind of a picture of the new normal. The new normal in America is we believe that we're always going to have a car payment. Most Americans today believe that we're always going to have a car payment. A car payment is just a way of life, and this is just the new normal, that you're always going to have a car payment. As soon as you pay off the car, I'm going to get a new car payment and start all over on a new car payment, and that's just become a new normal in America. Uh, The new normal in America is we have no money in the bank for emergencies. One out of four Americans don't even have $1 set aside in case the water heater breaks or something happens in life. The new normal in America is we have student loans that have been around for so long that they become a family pet. That that they've just you know, it's just a way of life. It's just who we are now. The new normal is we're up to our eyeballs in debt. The new normal is seventy to eighty percent of Americans today live paycheck to paycheck and have very little saved for retirement. the no- The new normal in America is broken. It does not. Work. I I would rather us get away from being normal and become a little bit weird because weird (laughs) works. Like let's not be normal, let's be weird, let's be different, let's do what works. I'm gonna I'm gonna share a story of a weird teenager in our church. She's a she's a young girl who's off at college right now, Shannon, and she grew up in our church and she got a little bit weird when she was a senior. And she joined one of our stewardship small groups. You hear us talking a lot, our financial peace, university, stewardship groups, crown groups that we do as a church. She joined one of them. Uh, the first She joined because her mom made her the first four weeks. She was not interested at all, tuned it out. Watched the clock, just saw how fast she could get out of there. And then all of a sudden around week five, she went all in 110% and bought in. And she sent this photo to her small group leader. He shared it with me. She went all in on learning how to budget, learning how to manage, learning how to steward her money. She's an artist, so she decorated different envelopes. And every time she got paid, she would put all of her money into the different envelopes, you know, annual DMV dues, her flex fund, her tithe insurance payments, gas, phone bill, her car, just really learn how to manage and budget well, and really begin to understand the concept of stewarding money. Now, when she got prepared to head off to college, she she had a dream from very young that she always wanted to go to college in Oregon. She wanted to go to Oregon uh, for her college. And After she went through the stewardship class, she began to do all the research on colleges, and she discovered that if she went to Oregon for college, she would graduate with $100,000 of student debt, student loan debt, $100,000. And so she said, you know what? I don't know if I want to live the rest of my life with $100,000 worth of student debt. So she started doing the research for the California schools, University of California schools. And she realized that if she went to a University of California school, she could graduate four years of college without $1 of student debt. And so even though Oregon, her whole life was her dream, she goes to her mom, she says, mom, I'm not going to Oregon, I'm going to Cal stool I just can't imagine why in the world I would go to school four years and have $100,000 worth of debt when I can go to school four years and graduate with no debt. I'm telling you, that's weird, but weird works. That may not be normal in the world today, but it works, and we need to begin to understand how do we manage what is God's, and I think the church needs to lead the way on a new normal. You see, our goal as Christians, for those of us that follow Christ, we have some financial goals. One is we want to trust God completely with everything. We want to save money consistently. We want to recognize God's ownership over everything, and we want to embrace money's God-given mission. God has a mission for money, and he's looking for people who will embrace his mission over money. Let me put it like this. God doesn't use Wells Fargo as his bank. Do you know who God uses as his bank? He uses you. You are God's bank on planet Earth. God deposits money with you that he wants you to manage it for him and make sure it gets to where it needs to go because he doesn't use banks, he uses you. And he wants us to commit to a lifelong uh, uh, just passion of generosity. So let me go to the foundation verse for the series, Genesis 12. This is the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant that we live under today as New Testament Christians. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. God makes this promise that applies to us today. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. God's plan, God's heart, God's passion is for you to be blessed, for you to live a life of more than enough. Why? Why? Because there's a purpose. He says, I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. God wants to bless you so that you can be a blessing. God wants to give you more than enough so that you can use it to make the difference he created you to make with your life. So to truly understand the series, we've got to answer a very simple question, and that's who's the owner? Who's the owner? Who owns your car? Who owns your house? I'm not talking about whose name is on the title. I'm talking about who's the owner. Who owns all of the money in your bank account? Who owns all of your investments? Who owns your car? Who owns all of your hobby equipment? Like, who is the owner? We touched on this a little bit week one, but I want to go a little deeper on this today. You see, when you know the owner, you handle things differently, don't you? We talked about staying in a friend's vacation home, if you've ever you know, stayed in a friend's vacation home. How many know it's not as relaxing as a hotel because you're afraid to do anything? Like you don't want to touch anything. You don't want to break anything. You spend the last 48 hours of vacation cleaning it from top to bottom that you really don't even enjoy staying there because you're on edge the whole time. Why? Because you know the owner. When you know the owner, you handle it differently. You know, most of you are are the type of people that if you borrow somebody's car, when you bring the car back, it's washed, it's filled up with gas, you always bring it back in a better condition than before you borrowed it. Why? Because you're not the owner and you're caring for it for the owner. You see when you understand who owns it all, you handle it differently. You treat it differently. You care See, you how would you treat your car differently if you realized you weren't the owner? If you realize you're just managing it for a short period of time, for somebody else. You see, here's the truth. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's, all of it, everything in it, it's all God's. Everything is his. The world and all its people belong to him. Psalm 50 goes on to say, for all the animals of the forest are mine. And I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And I know every bird on the mountains and all of the animals of the field are mine says God. And I love, I love the way God says this next line. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I would just eat one of my cows. It may be living on your farm, but it's my cow. I don't need to tell you if I'm hungry. All of the world is mine and everything in it. You have to settle the question, who owns it? Who owns it? You see, when you settle that question, life gets a lot simpler. Life gets a lot easier easier. So I'm going to give you three truths today. If you answer the question correctly and God really is the owner, i want to give you three truths. Here's the first one. Number one, if God is the owner, then make sure he owns it all. Make sure God doesn't own just a portion. Make sure he owns it all. And we're going to talk about what that actually means. Because it's one thing to say that God owns it all, and it's another thing to do it. It's another thing to live it. It's another thing to make it real. One of the privileges I've had over the years, and especially during my time in Los Angeles at the Dream Center, is I got to know the Green family uh, really well, the owners of Hobby Lobby. Uh, Hobby Lobby is an incredible company, $4 billion of profit every year. Zero dollars of debt, thousands of stores nationwide, one of the highest you know, minimum wages for their employees and healthcare and benefits for, for their people. That there's really not a company like Hobby Lobby. And the owner and founder of Hobby Lobby, David Green, recently wrote a book, Giving It All Away. That I would you can't pick it up today because Hobby Lobby's closed on Sundays, just like Chick-fil-A, them Christians. I mean, anytime you get really hungry for Chick-fil-A, you show up and they're closed because it's a Sunday, anyways. I'm 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 a little bitter over that. I'm, <laughs> see, very very grateful for them for being closed on Sunday, but they're the same way. You can pick it up tomorrow at Hobby Lobby, giving it all away. Great book to read. Um, you know, one of the amazing things about this family is they really don't look at the company as theirs. I remember about 10 years ago when they first came to Los Angeles to visit the Dream Center, I was, I was responsible for picking them up at the airport and driving them around and kind of spending a few days with them. And you know, I was prepared. I mean, this is a $4 billion company, so I was thinking they're going to be flying into the, to the private airport you know, with the private jet because they've got to have a company plane at $4 billion. And so I was getting everything ready, and the secretary called me from their offices in Oklahoma. And you know, I was gonna write down all the information of their flight, and she said uh, they're flying into LAX on Southwest Airlines. <laughs> and I was shocked. I was like, "What do you? I mean, the family is flying. I mean, the, you're not sending employees, right? No, no, this is the Greens. They're flying in the family. Uh, they're flying into LAX on Southwest Airlines. So you know, I go pick them up and." You know, I'm in the car, and, and Steve Green, the son, is sitting in the front seat with me, and, and he's now running the company. And I'm asking Steve, I said, why in the world did you guys fly Southwest Airlines? I mean, certainly you could justify a corporate jet at $4 billion. And he, he said, do you know what it would cost us as a family to fly from Oklahoma to Los Angeles on a private jet? I said, no, I have no idea. He said, it'd be about $15,000 for us to fly from Oklahoma to Los Angeles on a private jet. Do you know what it costs my family on Southwest Airlines? It costs us $600. Do you know what I can do with that extra $14,000 in China to buy Bibles for people who don't have Bibles? Why would I spend that money on us when I can spend that money on God's work? I mean, I was shocked. I mean, I've never seen people like this. I mean, the most humble people... Now. A couple years ago, I was at a private roundtable with David Green, the founder and owner. of a group of us pastors in Phoenix, Arizona with, with my pastor, and, and he was just kind of talking to us about the company, and he said, you know, a few years ago, I was up early morning devotions, and, you know, I was just talking to God, and I heard God say to me, I hear you say a lot that this is my company, and David said, yeah, God, it's your company. I mean, we've, we've always, you know, they get 50% of the profits away every year. I mean, they've always viewed it as God's company, and it, it was his And and God says to him in his quiet time, prove it. Prove it. And and he was taken aback because they've always lived like it was God's company. And so he sits down with the family, and they realize what God was asking them to do. They took, this, this is shocking, they took a $4 billion company. And they gave it to God about five, six years ago. The entire company to God. How do you physically give a company to God? Like, isn't He in heaven? Like, how does that work? Here's what they did: They took the entire company and put it in a trust that is restricted for ministry, missions, and the work of God, where not one family member will ever get a penny of inheritance, a stock, or a share out of the company. They literally gave a four billion dollar company to God. They said, "We get salaries." God owns the tree, we eat the fruit. And David said, I've been on the same salary for 11 years. Like, they haven't given me a raise in 11 years. And, you know, I started this company, and it's booming. <laughs> but he said, listen, it, it's, it's not ours. Our, our children aren't going to get this. Our grandchildren aren't going to get this. It's God's. They gave." And if you remember, a year later, they won a landmark court case with the Supreme Court that they should have never won. Why? Because it was God's. It was God's. Make sure God owns it all. Now, let let me let me explain this to you by explaining to you how it works for us personally. Like we all have a soul that we want our soul to be redeemed by God so that we can eternally be with God forever in heaven. So, how does that work? What is the process of us becoming Christians? What is the process of God, you know, acquiring ownership of our soul so that we get to go to heaven? Well, Peter says. Just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. So for us to be able to go to heaven, we've got to become holy. We've got to be perfect in other sense. Holy means set apart for the Lord. Uncommon for the Lord. Holy for the Lord. Now, here's the dilemma that you and I have. None of us are holy. We've all blown it. We've all made mistakes. In fact, Paul puts it like this in Romans, all have sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us fall short of God's holiness. None of us will ever be holy, which means none of us will ever be accepted by God. None of us can ever go to heaven because of our past. Let me put it like this. If you tell one white lie as a child, and you spend the rest of your life doing hundreds and thousands and millions and millions of good things, you'll still never be 100% holy. The best you could ever get to in your own ability is 99.999999999 whatever percent holy. And let me put it like this, anything less than 100% is not acceptable to God. Let me put it like this, We all have a list, one through ten of the most important things in our life. If God is not number one on your list, don't kid yourself. He's not on your list. You can't have a holy God take second place in your life. You can't have a holy God take third place in your life. If God is not first on the list, He's not on the list. So if I'm not 100% holy, I've got a problem. I can't be holy to be accepted by God. So what is the solution? How does it work? Well, if we keep reading, it says... But all are justified by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What does that mean? God took His Son in heaven, tithe His Son to earth to redeem us from the curse of sin. Remember what we talked about last week? When I offer God the tithe, when God gets the first 10%, it redeems the other 90% of everything I have from the curse of sin so it could be under the blessing of God and when it's under the blessing of God, it it operates differently than when it's not under the blessing of God. Jesus was the tithe. God offered his son to redeem us from sin. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood so that we could be reconciled by faith. Again, all throughout the New Testament, Jesus is called the firstborn. He's called the firstfruits. He's called the first. The tithe is always the first fruits. It's always the firstborn. That's why Romans 11 says if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. So if Jesus was holy and he was offered on our behalf as our first fruits, all of us become holy because of Jesus. And if I become holy because of Jesus, that means every blemish on my record, every imperfection, every lie, every sin I've ever committed is removed from my record. It was put on Jesus on the cross so that I become holy and acceptable to God because Jesus was the tithe that redeemed me from sin. So the point was, if God is the owner, make sure he owns it all. How do I make sure God owns everything I have? How do I make sure God owns all the money in my bank account? How do I make sure God owns my house and God owns my car and God owns all my possessions? If the part of the dough offered as first is holy, then the whole batch is holy. God can only accept what is holy. You can only give God what is holy. If it's not holy, God can't accept it. The Bible says God is preeminent. Preeminent means he's first of all, above all, and before all. Which means God can only accept that which is holy. God can only accept that which is first. And if God gets the first, then everything else in our possession becomes holy. So if you want God to own it all, then the first has to be offered to God. If God doesn't receive the tithe, then nothing else you own is His. Because nothing else you own is holy. Only if the first is holy does everything else become holy. This is how we make sure God owns it all. See, it's one thing to say, well, everything I have is God's. It's another thing to make sure everything you have is holy. Because you can say it's God, but if it's not holy, God can't accept it. God can't receive it. So if the first is holy, then everything else is holy. That's why we tithe. We tithe to say, God, you own it all. Because when I offer God the tithe, everything else I have becomes his. Everything else I have becomes holy and set apart for The Lord. It's a powerful, powerful principle. Here's the second point. If God is the owner, then don't transfer the title. If God owns it all, don't sign the deed away to anybody else. Don't transfer the title. What do I mean? In other words, don't become a slave. Don't give anyone else lordship in your life. When you are mastered by something else, it's going to keep you from receiving the benefits of grace. It doesn't keep you from grace. God's grace is for you. You're just not receiving the benefits of grace when you've given yourself to something else. When you allow anything else in life to master you, you're not under the benefits. When anything else competes with his lordship, it's a bad deal. Corinthians puts it like this. You were bought at a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Do you realize when you said yes to Jesus, now, if you haven't said yes to Jesus, then you own yourself and you can do whatever you want with your life. But if you said yes to Jesus, you don't get to call the shots anymore. Why? Because you have a Lord. Lord means ruler, boss, authority in your life. You were bought at a price, and it wasn't just any price. It says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, so you were bought with the most precious commodity in the universe. There's no amount of gold, no amount of silver, no amount of precious jewels that'll ever come close to the precious blood of Christ the greatest commodity in the universe, and that's what God used to buy you back. Paul goes on in Corinthians to say there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. So if there's one Lord, don't give lordship to anybody else. Have one Lord, one God. How do we do it? Well, here's here's the way Jesus puts it. No one can serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. That's very interesting. Jesus is not saying that, you know, you can love money most and still love God. You still have a place in your heart for God. He's saying if you love money most, you're going to end up hating God. It's not that you can love God just a little bit less. Like I still love God. I still want God to be in my life. I still want God, you know, there. I just, you know, I'm really driven by money. I'm really motivated by money. Now I still love God, but I'm but I'm no, Jesus says it doesn't work that way. If you love money most, you will end up hating God. And we see that all the time. Or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. They both can't be the Lord of your life. So how does money become our master? Well, there's really two ways money becomes a master. First is greed. Greed, man, when when, when greed gets a hold of you, money becomes your master. You are motivated, dominated. Money becomes the Lord of your life. Jesus, Jesus talks about greed like this in Matthew 6. When you study Matthew 6, it's a whole message on money. And then, right in the middle of a message on money, it's money before, money after. He goes into this thing about the eye is the lamp of the body. I want you to understand he's still talking about money here. It may not sound like money, but he's giving you a principle about money. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, if you've got a healthy view of money, your whole body will be full of life. But if your eyes are unhealthy, in the Greek, that Greek word is a connotation of stinginess and greed. If your eyes are stingy, if your eyes are full of greed, your whole body will be full of darkness. Darkness meaning you can't see it. So if you have greed in your eyes, he's saying you're going to be blinded to it. You're going to, it your whole body's going to be in darkness, and you're not going to see that you're blinded to greed. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, I can prove this as a pastor. In 24 years of ministry, I've heard people come to me and meet with me and confess to me every sin under the sun. Like, I've heard it all. Like, I've heard things you can't even imagine, like like sins that people have committed. Do you know what I've never heard one time? I have never heard in 24 years of ministry one person come to me and say, Pastor, I'm struggling with greed. Never. Never. I've never heard one person in 24 years say, Pastor, I'm struggling with materialism. And yet Jesus says it's one of the biggest things we deal with as human beings. How come nobody confesses it because we're blinded to it? We don't see it. And here's why we don't see it. As long as you know one person in your life that you consider to be greedier than you, you automatically assume you don't struggle with greed. You just need one person you consider to be greedy, and you're like, that's greedy. I'm not greedy. That's greedy. That's greedy. And we're going to deal with this more in the next couple weeks because one of the biggest things killing America right now is as a human being, psychologists will tell you this, scientists will tell you this, the Bible will tell you this, we were created for delayed gratification. We get joy out of delayed gratification. There's no more delayed gratification in America today. I mean, on a Pop-Tart box, it now gives you instructions for to microwave your Pop-Tart in three seconds if you don't have a minute to wait for the toaster. When I grew up, we had this thing called layaway. Some of you have never even heard of that word, layaway. How many of you remember layaway? Come on, layaway people. Layaway, man, I, I, I was not allowed. We didn't do credit cards when I was growing up. We did layaway. I, I found a toy that I wanted. It went on layaway, and every week I took my allowance to the store, and I gave them a little bit of my allowance week after week after week after week until I finally got it off a of Layaway. Do you know what layaway did for my generation? It gave us joy. It gave us satisfaction. It gave us appreciation. It taught us value. Why? Because as a human being, we're created for delayed gratification. When there's no delayed gratification, there's no joy. You buy something on a credit card, and you didn't have to wait, and you didn't have to work, and you bought it with money you don't have today. As soon as you buy it, watch watch yourself. As soon as you buy it, you don't care about it anymore, and you're on to wanting the next thing. Why? Because there is no delayed gratification. When there's delayed gratification, you enjoy it so much more. See, when you live under grace, there's a supernatural contentment that God gives you, a supernatural contentment that allows you to not have to keep up with the Joneses, that allows you to drive a, a used car if it's helping you get out of debt, a supernatural contentment when you know the God of the universe loves you. The other way that money will become your master is debt. Debt, greed will lead you into debt. Proverbs 22 says, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Slave. Slavery limits our options in life. When you are a slave, you have to answer to a master, which means you don't have the freedom to do what you want to do. God asks you to give. You can't can't obey God. You've got to check with your master first. You see, when you're a slave, you've got to ask your Lord permission before you're allowed. So if Jesus comes to you and says, I want you to be generous over here, all right, Jesus, let me go check with my Lord. No, I don't have the flexibility because I'm a slave right now. I have another Lord in my life. I'm a slave to my lender. Do you understand how this works? It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Now, don't be condemned because all of us have made bad choices. My wife and I were in a really ugly situation a few years ago, and we had to make some very tough decisions to get out of it, and there is hope. But the key is repentance, and the word repent isn't a nasty, ugly, mean word. I know there's guys on the street corner that yell at it, and they make it sound horrible. It's not a mean word. The word repent in Greek means metanoia. It's just change of mind. You've got to change the way you view money. You change the way you view credit cards. Change the way you view debt. And if you need help in this area, we have an interest list going now. You can sign up for one of our fall groups on finance and stewardship. Stewardship at coastlinechurch.org, because this is a learned skill, It's something that you learn over time. It's amazing to me that in America today, if you want to drive a car, you have to go through driver's education, but if you want a credit card, we just give it to you. There's no such thing as financial education. Can you imagine what America would look like without driver's education? There'd be wrecks all the time. Well, look at the financial condition of America. People are getting in financial wrecks constantly. Why? Because there was no education in this area. And so as a church, we've got to lead the way. And then here's the the final point. If God is the owner, then manage his estate well. It's his. The car, the house, the money, it's all his. Manage it well. See, point number one deals with the first 10% of all that we earn. Point number two deals with living off of more than 100%, which which too many Americans are doing right now. Point number three is all about managing the other 90% well. See, here's what stewardship is. When we, we, we have a board member whose wife became the trustee of her dad's estate when her dad medically became incapacitated. He couldn't make decisions uh, on his own, so she became the trustee over his estate medically, financially, uh, in every other way. And here's what the estate attorney told her. This was very telling. The estate attorney told her the role of a steward was not to make the decisions that they thought was best for their dad, but to make decisions based on what their dad would have wanted. Very different than what we think, huh? Whether it made sense to them or not, kind of sounds familiar. How many of us are making decisions for God based on what we think is best versus what he thinks is best? God, here's how I think you should spend your money. And so we're going to do what I think is best for you as opposed to really learning what does God think is best in this area of my life. And if you look at our stewardship small groups, to be very honest, most of the small group is about managing estate well. It's about inheritance. It's about legacy. There is a small portion on getting out of debt. That's a small portion of it, but the majority of it is for all of us. How do we manage things well for his glory? How do we make sure we're leaving an inheritance for our grandchildren? How do we make sure we're living a life of legacy? It deals with everyone, whether you're struggling financially or whether you're in a pretty good position financially. These groups are for everyone. Let me give you a few management keys before we close. First is know the condition of his estate. It's amazing to me how many people don't know the condition of their finances. They don't know how money is being spent, where money is being spent. They're just hoping for the best every month. Can I tell you that money is a very spiritual part of the Christian life? Or the Bible wouldn't deal with it so much. And let me also say this. This is the one part of your faith journey that is actually quantifiable. Stewardship can actually be seen. How you're doing spiritually in the area of money can actually be seen on a spreadsheet. There's no hiding from how you're doing. Put it like that. But see, here's where the enemy comes in, and the enemy uses shame and pride to get us to the point where we don't talk about it. We don't want to talk about it, and we don't want anyone to to get in to see how we're doing, and and we just kind of isolate in this area. We'll talk about everything else. We'll talk about parenting and affairs and anger and addiction, but money, for some reason, has become an off-limit topic. Why? The enemy. Well, here's what Proverbs says, riches can disappear fast. And the king's crown doesn't stay in his family forever. So watch your business interests closely. Know the state of your flocks and your herds. Get honest about where you're at. Here's the second. God has a plan. Do you know what it is? Now, these aren't in your notes. If you're looking for fill in the blanks, they're not there. This is just additional stuff that I was working on yesterday. God has a plan. Do you know what it is? God has a plan. Success doesn't happen by accident. Do you know what a financial plan is called? Called a budget. And a budget can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Like some of us don't like Mr. Budget because he tells us no. But I'm telling you, it can save a marriage. Because tell me know that in in most marriages, there's one person who kind of watches the budget, and there's one person who just likes to spend the budget. And and when that person comes to you and, and, and says, Oh, can you can you buy me this? then the best answer for you, and whether, you know, whatever you role you are in the marriage, the best answer is, I would love to buy that for you. <laughs> Let me ask Mr. Budget and see what he has to say. Because <laughs> now we know Mr. Budget doesn't have any emotions. Mr. Budget is just black and white. I mean, he's the best friend you'll ever have for your marriage. Like, I would love to buy that for you. Let me ask Mr. Budget and see what he has to say. Jesus said, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and create a budget? Aren't you going to estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? There's another truth. Wise people save money. Wise people save money. See, the problem in America today is we don't just spend what we have. We spend more than we make. They say the average American spends 117% of their income. How do you spend 117% of your income and it not go bad at some point in your life? Yet, we're doing it because we don't know the state of our affairs, and we're just spending, and we don't know how it, we just hope it'll all work out, and yet maybe Jesus will come back and I won't have to pay this off. (laughs) Proverbs 21 says, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. If you're spending everything you make, the Bible calls you a fool. If you're spending everything you make, the Bible says that is foolish. We save for the future. We save so we can be generous. We save for emergencies. Building wealth takes time and discipline. There's no such thing as a get-rich-quick scheme. Let me tell you this. If it's too good to be true, guess what? It's too good to be true. Every single person I've ever seen follow those quick-rich plans have gotten themselves in trouble. We don't get rich quickly, we get rich faithfully. There's a big difference. The Bible says the trustworthy person will get a rich reward, but a person who wants quick riches will get themselves into trouble. So again, simply recognizing that God owns it all is not enough, we've got to be good managers. See, a bad manager doesn't value the owner's money, and if we're not faithful to manage the owner's money, it won't be there when he wants us to give some away. So let me give you a parable that applies to all of us. And this is from Jesus. Now, and, and, and this is for anyone that owns anything. Like if you own a pair of shoes, this parable applies to you. This is, for, this is not for rich people. This is for people who have any possession. If you have any material possession, a phone, a pair of shoes, if you're wearing clothes today that were not borrowed, this applies to you. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager. Who's going to manage my stuff well? Whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. Again, God has a need and he has a supply and he wants to use you to get the supply to the need. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. When you manage what you have well, God can trust you to manage more. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. I'm just going to spend it all on myself. I'm going to do whatever I want. I could care less about those starving kids in Africa. I could care less about the people who are in need and need help and need me to be a blessing in their life. Forget all of them. They can suffer and be abused because I'm taking care of me, myself, and my own. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces. Where's the nice Jesus? I thought Jesus was like love and sweet. and I mean, look look, at the way Jesus is talking about bad stewards. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. And that's not because the master is gonna beat you. God's not gonna beat you and punish you for this. Life will punish you. When you don't handle money well, life will punish you on its own. But the one who does not know, so the one who is ignorant, and does things deserving punishment, will also be beaten with few blows. So, so ignorance is not an excuse in this area. You can say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. You know they told me that you know zero percent interest in buying that new car, and it sounded like such a good deal. I didn't know. You're still going to get beaten by life, even if you didn't know. That's why, that's why knowing God's word on this stuff matters. From everyone who has been given much, much more will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be Asked. Very, very important. So let me ask you a quick series of questions as we close. First off, what if God is the owner? What if God actually is the owner of everything you have? What if we're just managers? What if everything belongs to Him? What if He expects me to go do and give when He calls me to? What does any of this have to do with my life right now? How will this change my budgeting? How will it change my giving? How will it change my buying decisions? What is my buying filter for when I buy things? Why is it such a big deal? Remember the theme verse. God says, I will bless you. God wants to give you more than enough. Why? Not for your selfishness, not for your materialism, not for your greed, but so that he can make you a blessing. So let me leave you with this point. Great management leads to great generosity. The reason I live a frugal life is so that I can give. The more frugal I am, the more generous I can become. The better I manage God's resources that he's deposited into my life, the more generous I can be, the bigger difference I can make with my life because I'm managing well. So let me close with this challenge from the Apostle Paul. Paul challenges young Timothy who's pastoring a church. So in essence, this is the challenge in my life. Paul says to Timothy, command command. I want you to notice Paul doesn't say suggest. Will you agree with me? The word suggest and the word command are very different words. It, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. Command those who are rich. Rich. Okay. Well, right there, pastor, you got me. I'm not rich. So this doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. Okay. Let's, let's get a working definition of rich. Would you agree today that if you made in the top 1% of income earners in the world, if you were in not top 10%, forget that, just the top 1%, let's just be safe and say 1%. If you're in the top 1% of income earners on planet Earth today, would you agree with me that you are rich? If you're not in the 99, you're in the top 1%. You're a 1%er. Would you agree you're rich? The top 1% in the world today makes an average of 32,000 US dollars a year. That's the top 1%. 32,000 U.S. So if you make 32,000 U.S. dollars a year, this is talking to you. If you make less than 32,000 a year, it's still good to hear this. (laughs) Command those who are rich in this present world. That's a very interesting word, present. What is Paul trying to say? Is there another world? Like, why didn't he say, command those who are rich in this world? Why did he have to say the word present, present world? Because this isn't the only world there is. We're not living for this world. We're living for another world. Not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Don't trust the money. It'll always let you down. But to put their hope in God, and I love this phrase, who richly provides us with everything for our... Do you realize God wants you to enjoy the blessings in your life? God wants you to enjoy your boat. He wants you to enjoy your golf clubs. He wants you to enjoy the home that you live in. He wants you to enjoy the life that you have. God provides all of that to you richly. He generously provides you all of these things for your enjoyment. He has no problem with you enjoying the blessings in your life. He actually wants you to enjoy the blessings in your life. He just doesn't want you to consider yourself the owner. He wants you to recognize where it all came from and be responsible with it all. Because he goes on to say, command them to do good to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for, for who? For Jesus? No. It doesn't say they're laying up treasure for Jesus. It says they're laying up treasure for themselves. He's saying you need to do this for your sake. You need to live this way for your sake as a firm foundation for the coming age because this present world isn't all there is so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. So let me, let me close with this. Larry Burkett, the famous author and radio personality, uh, he made the statement that, show me your checkbook. I know some of you are too young to know what a checkbook is. It's your like, spreadsheet or your Excel dot like whatever you have. Maybe it's on your computer. It tells you how you spend all your money. Maybe your bank statement. Show me your bank statement. Show me your checkbook, and I'll show you your priorities because the checkbook is a window into the soul. You're like, no, that's not true. The checkbook's not a window into my soul. Yeah, it is. Jesus said, your heart follows your money, meaning your checkbook is a window into your soul. So if we all brought our checkbooks back next week and opened them up for everybody to see, what would our checkbook say about us? What does your bank statement say about you? Does it say that you're a generous giver? Does it say that you spend more than you make? Does it say you live on a disciplined budget? Does it say that you're saving money for emergencies and that retirement is a priority to you? Does it say that God is first in your life and everything you have has become holy because the first was holy? Like, what does it say about you? Because it is a window into your soul. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, God, I know this message lands hard with many people because... It touches nerves in our heart because our heart is connected to our money. And any time we talk about money, it hits the heart differently than any other message. But God, that's a good thing because you're after our heart and you want our heart. And you want us to understand stewardship and management and allow you to be the owner so that when the water heater breaks, we're not up all night stressed out over it. Because you're the owner. And so you're going to provide for it to be taken care of. So, God, let us get this into us what ownership looks like. And, God, let us make sure everything we have is holy because the first is holy. Let us make sure we're not transferring ownership to any other Lord or Master because of greed or debt. And, Lord, let us make sure we're managing everything else incredibly well according to your plan and your purpose, which ultimately, God, is going to benefit us because you want to richly provide all sorts of stuff for our enjoyment. You just need to trust us. And so, God, let us become faithful stewards for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand with me? Again, I don't want anyone to feel any condemnation over this. My wife and I, I'll share more about this in the next couple weeks. We made really bad financial decisions, and we had to make some tough decisions to get out of those. We've had numbers of families in our church go through our stewardship small groups in hopeless, impossible financial situations and have now found themselves debt-free and flourishing because they made some, some difficult choices, but they got honest and they got help. So if you need to take that next step, maybe it's to to sign up for the interest list for our stewardship groups this fall and really get some help. Maybe you just are desperate today. We'll have we have some finance coaches in the church that would love to meet with you right now and help you in this area. I've got a passion as a pastor to see every family in our church debt free because I know the benefit that'll have to your marriage, to your legacy. I know that that, you know being debt free will put you in a position to leave an inheritance to your grandchildren to create a greater legacy for your kids. It'll give you freedom to do so much more when Jesus is the one true Lord of your life in this area. But again, don't feel any condemnation. Just change your mind. Just metanoia, repent, change your mind and let's do some things differently, and we'd love to help you as a church. This is a passion of ours. We've helped numbers of people. We can provide you with testimonies and stories. If you need further, you know, you need, we'll, we'll introduce you to couples in our church that can tell you their story of going through one of the groups and how it's changed their life. So, so you don't have to do it blindly. We'll connect you with people ahead of time, give you as much information, because this, this is something dear to our heart. We want to see you free in this area, and you're going to love your life so much more when This weight is not around your neck. And it is possible doing it God's way. We're going to close with one song of worship. Our prayer team will be available. If you need to give your life to Jesus, we talked about him coming and redeeming your soul. Come talk to our prayer team. If you've never become a Christian, become a Christian today. Pray with somebody on our team. Or if there's anything else going on, we'd love love to pray with you today. One song, prayer team is available.